Welcome to season two of the World Nurse Collective podcast. For those who have not already tuned in, I'm Kat, show creator and your podcast host. This season, you can tune in on your pod player of choice or watch the conversation on YouTube. Just search for World Nurse Collective, where you'll find the many conversations with nurses from all specialties and walks of life. From community health clinics of Botswana, urology nursing in Montreal, and even wildfire rescue relief in Australia, my hope is to connect nurses everywhere with stories that encourage, inspire, and inform. However you're tuning in, leaving a like, a thumbs up, or a comment on an episode helps spread the word about this podcast. So please be sure to subscribe if you'd like to hear more conversations like this one. If you're feeling extra generous, head over to the Patreon site and make a donation to the show of as little as $2 a month so I can keep this podcast going with your support. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash World Nurse Collective. On that note, no matter where in the world you are, wherever you happen to be, enjoy the show. On this episode, we're heading to Queensland, Australia with Karen, a nurse of 28 years with experience in outback remote community care, as well as emergency medicine and fly-in, fly-out nursing. She shares with us so many incredible experiences, from Indigenous palliative care to caring for the first responders of the Australian wildfires in 2020. I had to divvy this conversation up into two episodes. So be sure to clear up some listening time and tune in. It's my honor to introduce to my listeners this incredible nurse and our world colleague. Here's Karen. I am a registered nurse. I do a lot of rural remote nursing. I still also work here in Brisbane, Queensland, in other areas in the hospitals as well. I love doing rural remote nursing. I also do a lot of fly-in, fly-out nursing where I will go to mining sites or specific areas. Even though you're doing rural remote, you still have to fly into some of those areas. Mm. Um, so get to, um, I guess I'm pretty diverse because I've had the opportunity, the good fortune of seeing amazing events, treating amazing people, also being able to educate amazing people as well. So, um, yeah, it's been very, very good. Yeah, I have an extensive background in emergency, but I still work, like I was saying, in a lot of other areas. I do also work in mental health. So, sorry, my dog's about to bark. Of all days. No, okay. We'll get get the fire sirens going, like the fire trucks, the dogs will be barking. Like, don't worry about it. (laughs) We'll get it all. You're right. So emergency, Uh, and you were saying you were also working in psychiatry? Yeah, also working in psychiatry. Um, So when I come home from working out in rural remote areas, I come back and work now at the moment in psychiatry, but I still do work in emergency departments and medical surgical wards as well. I'm very lucky because I was also a nurse educator for a very long time at a couple of the universities and the TAFE colleges here in Queensland. So I'm probably a bit of a wealth of knowledge for most people. I can imagine. How long have you been doing this for? How long have you been nursing for? 
far too long, far too long. <laughs> um, I think about 25 or 28 years, but don't tell anybody that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, it's our secret. Okay. <laughs> And so when you started, did you go straight into remote nursing or did you start off like in a hospital bedside? Or uh, When I started, I basically started out uh, in aged care, believe it or not. Um, I always say working in aged care is like your apprenticeship to nursing. Yeah. If you can do that, you can deal with anything because you've got such a diverse range of people and patients that you're looking after. Um, when I graduated, I went into a hospital. I got a lot of fantastic experience from that hospital with the knowledge that I took from there, as well as all of the other educational experiences. I then took them out and used them in remote areas. Um, I think I was very lucky because I had the opportunity to go to a small country town, work in there for a little while demonstrate the knowledge that I had there and then moved further out again um and yeah I've seen a lot of interesting little things when you went further out like so when you went remote are you working independently or are you working in teams or is it like remote clinics is it both. like both. home care it, it, or? yeah it's both um I have actually worked remotely on my own in clinics where I've I've had the luxury of being able to call the RFDS or call um, the health facilities where they have doctors there who I can call and say, hey, this is my problem, can you please assist? And they will if needed. I have also worked in a lot of team environments where you might go to a smaller hospital but there will only be one or two nurses there and we're, we're still working as a team. Okay. And so I guess it's kind of the same thing here. So what we have is like remote nursing in Northern Canada and there aren't really that many doctors, but there are a lot of nurse practitioners and bachelors and um, RNs that are up there and they kind of do the same thing. They'll contact services, they'll contact the doctors and like with the heavy load, the heavy cases or something that they have to fly out maybe, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's predominantly that's what we do here in Australia as well. The further out you go, the less likely it is that you are going to come across having a doctor out there. Um, yeah, I've, I have been to some areas where we don't have a doctor, but they are always on call. I've never been put in a situation where I haven't been able to contact a doctor. If all else fails, I will call the that we have a lot, a huge number of doctors that we can call. If you can't get hold of one, you will call another one. There's always the luxury of having that. Plus, we have computers where we can call them electronically. They can um, tap in and, and speak to us and, and watch us what we're doing as well. If we need assistance with certain procedures, this is why I do love technology when it's working properly. <laughs> doctors can zoom in and see patients see what we're asking different conditions where they can zoom in and have a look at say for instance a patient's got a cut or a small you know they might have a laceration on their on on a part of their body and the doctors will say yes okay well you're going to need to suture that or you're going to need to maybe just glue it up or they'll say no you need to fly that person out okay yeah. 
And so in Australia then, and I don't know if it's like by province, is it provinces or states? I'm sorry to be so naive, but is it? You're right, it's, it's a state. Yeah, in Australia, okay. it, everything is state, yeah. Okay, and so are the regulations different from state to state? Like your your, your uh, scope of practice and whether or not you have to call a doctor or get an order from a doctor for something, like does that change from state yeah. to state? Okay. Um, I'm not familiar with all of the states, but I would assume yes, they are. Um, I think because I deal with a lot of practitioners and I deal with a lot of doctors, my first point of call would always be the doctor um, or the nurse in charge. Different states I know are a little bit different. So I, I haven't been to I haven't been everywhere in Australia yet, but um, that is on my on my next yeah. adventure to go. <laughs> haven't been to yet. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So Take me through uh, what a shift would be like. You get in, take me through like what your shift would be. Like how does it start over there? I know it's different everywhere. Everyone that I speak to has a different like methodology, different way that like the staff meets and report is given and shift change and all of that. Uh, so I love hearing what the day-to-day -day is. Um, I won't mention the hospital, but I right. think my second or third places that I went to, I felt like a real city slicker when I went there because all of the windows down the bottom, they all had, they were all boarded up. And I'm thinking, this is a bit odd. I wonder why they're like this. Maybe it's from the rain. And I naively said, why are all the windows boarded up like that? And they said, oh, it's to keep the snakes out. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> do that okay let's do that <laughs> and handover when I was assuming we're about to do handover oh no we have to check for snakes first and I went okay so we walked through the ward very small ward and as we do there happened to be a 15 foot tiger snake sitting on the floor in there I'm like oh quick let's get the snake catcher we are the snake catcher just go <laughs> gardener plus also wardsman came in and he said is Fred back and I went Fred they go that's a snake I'm like I felt like such an idiot it was so funny <laughs> but it was good because he came in with the garden rag picked it up and took it out into the garden and it was like well, welcome to real nursing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. On top of everything else that you have to pay attention to, you got to worry about snakes. <laughs> about snakes, you have to worry about kangaroos hopping inside, which I love. Kangaroos will sometimes hop into the wards, which is really cute, but, you know, that has happened. They will just sort of like pop along into the hospital sometimes. Are you so it's, it's my leg? Are you serious? <laughs> I'll send you pictures of the kangaroos that I used to feed. That, I used to awesome. that would be yeah. awesome. I'm going to put those up. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. We had quite a few in one of the facilities I worked at. I could go outside, especially on night shift, and I just had this little unique sound I would make and I would have 20 or 30 kangaroos hobble up to see me I was like oh I feel like Skippy the bush kangaroo's mother do you guys have scorpions out there oh, 
I think we do, but not where I am, no. Okay. okay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So moving on to the human, like, <laughs> moving on to the humans in the hospital. <laughs> um, look, really good because where you go, look, it, the, the, that's the reason I really enjoy, I call it my snap back into reality because when I go out into the country and the further out you go, the people are more grateful and really appreciate what you're doing and they know that you're there to help them. So it's really nice and it makes you feel like you're there because you need it and, and people respect that. It's it's really lovely. Um, I'll give you a good example. In the same facility, believe it or not, I had the good fortune of meeting um I started to, I was very quickly educated into Indigenous health and how they deal with things. And I had this particular fellow who had lived near a river all of his life. And the hospital where, in the little section he was in, it was damn hot. He wouldn't even take cold water. It had to be tap water, but no cold water from the refrigerator because he'd never had it. It was like, it was such wow it was a educating event to see that we actually still have people in the city we don't think about that we think everybody has ice cold water everybody has nice clean water and aircon or fans right this gentleman had none of that and would not have it so it was really enlightening for me to go in and see that type of life that we don't actually, we don't think about anymore. We don't actually see it. So it was really interesting. And sadly, the man was um, palliative. So I had, in, to me, it was a good fortune of experiencing his death and how his family reacted to it, how everything happened. It was a bit of, it was a real privilege to be there because I got to see how they mourned, how he was treated. I got to learn about his life, what he'd been doing all the time throughout his life. So it, it was a real, it was a precious moment. Yeah. Wow. Mm. That's incredible. Yeah. So when you're when you're learning about that, like, do you actually have classes that deal with or like teach you about the different populations and different Yes, like, absolutely. You know, because we have different, yeah, we have different age groups, but like you said, like the culture is very different. And same thing here, we have like different regions will have different cultures. And we have like the northern region, which is like uh, completely different from like your cities here. So, yeah. and you actually have classes for that, like. Yes, we do. We have quite a lot of, uh, there is a lot of emphasis here in Australia on multicultural education. Also, there it's a lot of education on, in, on Indigenous lifestyles and Indigenous health because within the Indigenous region or area, there are a lot of different people that are all in the same area. Like you might have five or six different people, who, they call it a mob here, where they all come from a different family clan or a different tribe of people whereas they call themselves a mob so you have to know what that mob of people are like what they like to do whereas the ones a couple of blocks down or maybe a state down will be totally different again and the amount of languages it's it's impossible to keep up with all of the languages that they wow. speak 
Yeah. There's a lot of different dialects and just like actual like different languages or dialects like. Yeah, they all speak, uh, quite a lot of them do speak English now, but they do, there's a lot of dialects. You just, it's impossible to keep up with them all. Yeah. So, yeah, they're very interesting people and, you know, we do learn a lot from them and I'm sure they learn a lot from us too. But, yeah, they're very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So what kind of diseases would you see like on a more uh, predominant basis out in the remote areas or would you see more injuries or? You do see a lot more injuries. Depending on what it is, uh, you do see a lot more road injuries or there's a lot of domestic violence out in some oh. of those areas as well, so you, you do see a lot of that. I think it depends how far out you actually are at the time. Um, don't get me wrong, you're still treating people that have uh, renal failure. There's a lot of end-stage renal failure in some of those areas. You, you're still dealing with people who are oncology patients that have injuries or they've got their oncology illnesses that they don't want the treatment because they, they know that they're going to die, some of them, and they want to be home with their families. So okay. we still treat them and give them the dignity that they respect, that they deserve. Right. A lot of the areas that you go to, um, there's a lot of alcoholism as well. Yep. So we do you have dry zones? Because here in Australia we have dry zones where no alcohol is allowed in the areas at all. Um, there are some areas where they will allow them to have a six-pack of beer only, and that is actually instigated by the elders of the community. So um, it's really good to see how they, how they man this and how they, they make sure that it's actually looked after properly. When I was up in North Queensland last year, a little town that um, I went to, there was little signs up saying, this is an alcohol-free zone, do not bring alcohol into it or you can be arrested. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was really interesting in that matter. And I, when I went back to the hospital I was working at, I said, you know, why do, why do they have so many of the signs? And they said because they're so, the elders are so strict. They don't want alcoholics in the area because they want the people to be good, normal working people. And I thought, you know, that's really good to see. So what kind of like, what numbers of populations would you be seeing in these, in the areas, like in the remote areas? What are we talking about? Like a couple of hundred? Are we talking about a few thousand, tens of thousands? Uh, what area I go to. Uh, I was out in one area a couple of years ago where the total population was 320 people. And I was thinking, why on earth do we even have a hospital out here? But they still deserve to have the care. And it's like you go in there with that, I, I call it a city slicker mentality going, oh, my God, why do we have a hospital here for these little tiny towns? But that's their choice to live there. We still have to provide them good care. So, yeah, it was really interesting. Great, great. Another great place to go to because that's where I learned about crocodiles. <laughs> <laughs> don't go swimming in the water over here because one you'll either lose your dog or two you could lose your finger if not a leg <laughs> I would, look i had this young boy he was fishing in the river with his dad he i will never forget this story as long as i live it was the best ever this i had this young boy he was 16 he come in and he'd been bitten on the hand by a crocodile <clears throat> excuse me and 
dad brings him in. Oh, dad's all flustered. My son's just been bitten by a crocodile. Please help me. Please help me. Yeah. And it's quite a bad bite. And the boy is 16. He goes, oh, you'll be right. Dad, don't worry about it. I go, no, this is pretty bad. So we got him onto. um I ended up getting him connected up with the Royal Flying Doctor Services and we had to fly him out the next day. So while we were waiting and we'd given him intravenous antibiotics and cleaned the wound up as much as we could, I was sitting with this young boy in the afternoon and I said, wow, you know, when you get older and you have children, you're going to be able to tell your kids and your grandchildren I survived a crocodile bite. And he said, the bloody thing took my good lure. He was more worried about <laughs> he was more worried about his fishing lure being taken than being bitten by a crocodile. <laughs> Babes, it was so funny. I was like, your hand is almost hanging off, child, and you're more worried about losing a fishing hook. <laughs> yeah, that's sportsman dedication right there. Props to him. <laughs> Amazing. I was like, oh my goodness. So yeah, it, it's it's really interesting. Seen some yeah. really interesting things. I um delivered a baby once. I'm not a midwife. I am not a midwife. However, I was driving down the road one day in this big four-wheel drive. Um as I'm driving down the road, I saw this little lady sitting on the side of the road and I of course I stopped to see if she was okay. I said, Are you all right, love? She said, I'm gonna have a baby, love. Gonna have a baby. <laughs> well, she started to push and the baby's coming out, and we're right beside a river, mind you. And right as the baby starts to come out, and of course you've got to help. So I'm helping this poor lady, and then she grabs me by the hand and she goes, Miss, run! What? Miss, run! Get out of here! Run! But what are you talking about? Run! There's a crocodile! <laughs> out comes the baby. There's this great big crocodile slobbing up out of the river, trying to. Oh, so I grabbed her, grabbed this freshborn baby, threw them into the back of the car. Get in the car, and the crocodile's trying to chase us as we're getting to the car. So then we just try and walk normally, and she said, "Oh, miss, that was close." I'm going, "Yes, that's okay. I think I'll just change my underwear later." <laughs> Oh my gosh, if anybody's watching and you make movies, please contact Karen. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you guys go about it? Like, do you do a regular shift change? Like you do report? Yes, we do a full changeover of all of our patients, which can be anything from one to... 15, however big the hospital is, there's always, we always do the handover on all patients. And then after we do that, we do the basic shift check things where you go, if you're working in emergency, you're still doing a bedside check. So you're checking air, oxygen, all that type of thing. Talking with your patient too, making sure that your patient is still alive and talking. Breathing, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah, bedside handover. Um, yeah, so we will then do our basic shift restocking if we need to, um, check all your equipment as you normally do as well. Then you're going to liaise, see who's got appointments with telehealth. We have here in Australia 
it's called telehealth where we can take the patient into a room and they are connected up to basically what you and I are doing right now where they will zoom in and the doctors will do a telehealth conference with them, right. whether it be a doctor, physio, um, sometimes a dentist can come in and do a telehealth and say, yes, I'll be there next week, but what's, what, pro what problems do you have? Okay, mm. wow. And I mean, like... Um... In the, I don't want to say the age of COVID because this is going to be gone soon, hopefully. Yep. But um, yep. with COVID, that's been happening a lot in the hospitals here. Like even, I mean, you can be a block away from the hospital. You can be a block away from the doctor and you're still going to meet like online. Um, hmm. A lot of the clinics here and the doctors prefer to do that rather than having to meet face to face. And like. We do have that here in Australia as well. Um, but it depends where you are and how sick you are because the doctors um, or the secretaries, they will be asking the same questions as well. Have you been sick? Have you had the runny nose? All the, all the general COVID questions. But if the patient is okay, then, yes, the patients will come in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the patients will come in and see the doctors where they can. Occasionally, you might get a doctor that will actually go out and do a house call to some people as well, depending on their conditions. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty much the doctors will come in, we liaise with the doctors, and or we might have community nurses too. We have a pretty strong emphasis on community nurses here in Australia where sometimes the nurses will go out and where you don't have the facilities or the patient doesn't necessarily mean to need to be in hospital for particular cares, then we will have what's called what we have as community nurses here, where they will go out into the community, visit the patient, make sure that they're okay, check all their needs, do their dressings, uh, do blood sugars, especially for the diabetics, perhaps give them a bit more education and also give the family support as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there is yeah. a lot of family support that's involved in that, too. I like what you said earlier, too. Like, the uh, the education is super important. It's like they say, teach a man to fish and you feed him for life, or give a man a fish and you feed him for a meal and teach a man to fish and you feed him for life. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There isn't, I mean, like... <clears throat> I think sometimes, like, even even just being a new nurse, sometimes I take for granted the information that I've learned, and there's sometimes where I assume that it's common knowledge, but there's a lot of information that doesn't get distributed to communities and to the general public, um, or it's just not explained clearly, you know, but it's a one-to-one, -one and the person's being affected by it, they tend to listen in a little bit more, you know? Yeah, I think if you're giving them that your undivided attention, it's yeah. making them feel a little bit more wanted and respected because when they have that undivided attention, they're basically telling you their life stories and telling you a lot of things that they ex expect to, to remain confidential, but they need to be able to, to give out their needs and tell them what's happening so that we can fix those problems for them and assist them whatever way we can. Yeah. Yeah, and make adjustments too. I mean, like it might just be simple adjustments to like their lifestyle or diet, or it might be like bigger adjustments they have to make, or even as far as like equipment or, or anything like that that they'd need to like implement their day-to-day. Yeah. -day. yeah. Yeah. It, it's quite common where even here in some of the areas, we actually have physios that will go out to the patient's house and assess. Quite often, if someone's been in a hospital, they will have a physio or 
occupational therapists that will go out to their home and assess what the house is like to say, all right, you need a few a little bit more equipment within your home. So mm-hmm. they might need a bed stick to help them get out. They might need a stool over the shower, just basic things. But if they need other things like hoist to help them, whether the if the patient needs to be hoisted, they can educate the families and show them how to use a hoist to help get them out of bed. Right, and proper positioning and proper movements too so that they don't injure themselves as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like education for the family and for the support system is just as important too. Absolutely, 100%. It has to because if the family is not educated properly and you need to make sure that they are properly educated because if we don't, we're going to have reoccurring patients for injuries and wounds that should never have happened if they're coming back to the hospital all the time. Yeah, things definitely can be avoided. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. So now um, what's the... What's the accessibility to medication when you're when you're working remote areas? Like what kind of access do you have to like emergency medication and also long-term prescriptions, let's say? We normally have, um, depending on most areas that you go to, we normally have uh, a medications area that does have all of the medications that you need. If for some reason we're running short of some, we will we can ring up the pharmacy or speak with the doctor or the hospital manager and say, hey, we're running short on these drugs. We also do have an area where we can order a drug ordering system where we can contact the the, big, the next biggest hospital, notify them what we need, and then they will send out the supplies to us so that we've got the um, medications that we actually need. In some cases, if it's like way out every now and then you might actually have well a pharmacist does pop out every now and then and say hey how is going is there any extra drugs or these are new medications we'd like you to be trying with some of your patients as well okay so um all right so the medications like let's say you're running out though would it be a matter of being able to get it like have you been in a situation where it's like out of stock and like it's emergency and like it's going to be like uh I don't know, hours, days even that you would get it or? I would have to use a substance medication. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've been in that predicament yet. Um, And I know it does happen, but I'm a bit of a bit of a stickler. I like to make sure that we've got enough stock there. Never assume the unexpected. Always make sure that you've got it. It's better to throw a drug out that's been that's expired than to not have the medication there. We need to make sure that we've got the drugs there. And I mean, I know it does happen every now and then, but I'm a bit of a stickler for that myself. I like to make sure that we have got the medications there. Yeah. So when you go and do remote work, are you going typically to the same hospitals and clinics or are you going to like a lot of different new locations, like where you have to adapt new? to different locations all the time. That's why I love doing what I do. I have been to places I've never even heard of before. I went to a little town called Alpha, beautiful little town. Great stuff, great stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, lovely little town. I'd never heard of it. I was like, why do we never hear about these towns? And um, while I was driving through there, I went to a, a little town called Springshaw. And I went, 
Oh my god, is this Ayers Rock? There is a huge rock in this town. It's called Virgin Rock. Google it, you'll see it. And um, in this 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 rock is in the middle of a, a town right before Emerald in Queensland, sixty eight kilometers away from Emerald. That's how I remember all these things. <laughs> and Alpha, Alpha was great, fantastic little hospital, very very good. Now when I went to Springshaw. I was only at Springshaw for a few weeks. I walked away from that town, both towns in actual fact, with so much knowledge about the town and about the history of things that had happened in there. It was like, why do we not learn? Why do our children not learn these things in history at school? Like this rock, when it rains, you'll have to Google it. It's called yeah. Virgin, Virgin Rock. Yeah, Virgin Rock. Um, Springshaw, just okay. I'll send you the link. <laughs> got lots of photos of it. It was just amazing. But when I went there, I worked with this young girl who was 25, never been out of the town, maybe to Emerald. That was about it. And she told me that when we get big rains, like we do have up here at the moment that are up in central Queensland, this rock turns into a huge waterfall. Why have we never... Tourists do not do, tourist information needs to be educating people and sending them out to these areas because it's it's called Virgin Rock because when you look at it, it actually there is a natural formation. It looks like the rock is is a woman holding a baby. So that's oh. called Virgin. Yeah, that's what? why it's called Virgin Rock. And when the waterfalls come, apparently they go over the top of this rock. And I was like, oh, wow. Now, I had the good fortune on a day off to hike it. I drove up to the very top of this rock as far up as I could. I had to tell my partner that I had a few dings in the car afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi, sweetie. Bump the bumper bar. Oh, how did you do that? I uh, was on a mountain. <laughs> oh okay but yeah the town's got a lot of history because they've got this beautiful little cemetery and all of the cemetery all the grave sites had little little fences all around them and um the young girl that I was working with she said oh she said um you should have gone out to this other little part of town and one was called the Wills grave site and I said oh it was too far I'd been doing night shift I didn't I got so far out of town that I'm too tired. I'm not going back. Right. She said, you should have gone because that is where um, there was a family of six people many, many, many generations ago. It was back in the 1800s, I think. And um, basically what happened was it was when Springshaw, when white people started to go and live in this town and build the town of Springshaw. Well, what happened was the whole family with a young baby, that family of six children and the baby, they were slaughtered. The whole family was killed off by the Indigenous people within the area because they were all new to the area and a workman had come along and obviously tried to help the people and the family was discovered, I'm not sure when, but the family was discovered a, a, a short time after all of this had happened. Wow. So we're person was found is where they were buried and the townspeople put little fences around the the grave sites to protect them and I thought wow I should have gone out there we never hear about stories like this and to me 
it was such an eye-opener because we never hear about those types of things. And they had, in Springshaw, they had a huge fort. And I thought, I'll go and have a look at the fort. And I said to this young lass, oh, why is the fort, what's the fort for? What, what happened to the fort? They said it's being renovated. And the girl said to me, oh, that is being renovated because um, it's pretty old. There's a lot of history to the fort alone. And it's all in the history books. If you Google it, it all comes up. What happened was when white people discovered Springshaw and started to build their homes, there was um, all the white, the white men went in and they decided to build a, a big fence and like a fort up around the little town so that they could protect their families. Well, the Indigenous people came in and slaughtered all of the all these 40-odd men. And it was like, wow, wow. never heard of that one either. We yeah. never hear, and I'm not being racist by saying any of this because to me it is history and, and it's interesting to hear about these things because we never hear about this side of history and how the town was built up. And the town itself was actually built on an old volcano. And so... It was really interesting. I was like, wow. wow. So every town I go to, I get different information, learn different things, and I just come away with a wealth of knowledge that I can, whether it be medical or historical, and say, wow, have you ever been to Springshaw? Go and have a look. It's great. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. I think that anybody that's listening and is interested in doing remote nursing, that's that's part of the motivation is like learning about different places, different people, different things, and seeing so many different places too. Like it really is for me. um, I think like I was saying before about this gentleman that had passed away in this town that I was in, who was indigenous and lived by the river to watch the whole process of when his relatives did come in to watch how they all mourn and and how they sit with their relatives when they're passing over it was very very good because it was nice to see and for me it was a privilege to be there to for them to allow me in to assist them and help them as much as I could but to be able to view and see how they how they care about their person that's passing over so it was really it was really good because now I know that when I come across that again, and I have come across it many times, I know more how to deal with it myself and give them that little bit of extra care that they need because we're showing them the dignity and respect. It doesn't matter whether you're black, white or brindle, we all need to know little things about people's cultures to give them the dignity they need when it comes to palliative care. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so well said. Absolutely. Like, and there's so many different beliefs and journeys I, I i love palliative care i find and some people think it's bizarre when i say this but i find that like the death process can be as beautiful as the birth process yes, absolutely and ceremonial too and so special and important such it's such an important part of life that i find sometimes that like when it happens in a hospital, sometimes it's almost too sterile. It's not personal. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. there's more people now that even are like in the cities that are wanting to pass at home and want palliative care at home. 
Um, I think that's a bigger thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, it does make a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, I'm going to get my dog out of the way here. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. So would you say then like out of the aspects of nursing that you worked in, would like what would be your favorite part of it like would it be the acute care you said you worked in long-term care and elder care as well um if you could only choose like one specialty which would it be emergency you, emergency yeah. yeah yeah emergency yeah i love emergency what is it that you yeah. like about it um, <clears throat> too many things i think I, well, you never know what you're going to have come through the door, okay? Uh, you never expect the unexpected. You never know what you're going to have come through the door. Right. Um, and I think it's a little bit of an adrenaline rush as well. But it's it's also, for me, you don't have time to panic. You need to be yeah. quickly thinking. You need to be thinking all of the time. What is happening with this patient? Where are they going? How is their heartbeat going? What's their rhythm? What's their cardiac rhythm? What's their what sort of score pain score are they in? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and what is their mental status as well? Because you've got quite a few different things happening with patients where one minute they can be fine and then the next minute they can crash. Um, yeah, that was like a young fellow I had last year who had come in, he told me that he hadn't smoked a cone for three days. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's all right. And, I mean, we have to still respect what these people tell us, if, you know, each to their own is what they're doing. He never drank alcohol, never had a drop of alcohol in his life. He said, yes, I do smoke, and every now and then I might do something else. But he said, that's the end of the line. And this young boy was very, very ill critically ill one minute he was fine uh, his temperature basically started out at um <clears throat> 36 and within minutes he would go from 36 to up to 41 degrees straight away it was like wow this kid is boiling over this is an emergency what the heck is going on it was so difficult to cannulate this boy even to get the bloods from him and we thought straight away this kid is septic something is not wrong with him he was really really unwell boy and um even the doctor where i had a great doctor working with me two doctors and we discussed this patient and said look something's just not right with this kid one minute he's fine we gave him iv panadol and the temperature come down within an hour it was back up again up and down, wow. up and down. unbelievable case wow. and it turned out that he had um it was called Lemier's syndrome for the doctors and us to be able to deal with someone like that was very interesting because we had to fly this boy out and um when he was flown out he was literally told if you don't have surgery you're gonna die if you have the surgery, you could die. It, this boy was just an amazing young kid. And um, they did surgery on him. He came back a few weeks later, totally new boy. And to think that he could have died while he was in our care because nobody knew what he had. And to treat him the way we were, like we had to speak. When you're in a, a rural remote area, You've got to be able to liaise with the bigger hospitals and the consultants there that have all the knowledge. And 
the consultant that we'd spoken to at the time said, oh, look, this kid's got me flabbergasted. I don't know. We're going to have to, you know, get on to someone else. And being able to speak with doctors and their colleagues within the hospital system, one of the other doctors had come up and said straight away, I know what that is. Get him on a plane now. He was flown out within an hour. This, wow. this young person was classified as an emergency. They flew in straight away on a chopper, picked him up, and he was back down to a hospital. It was just like, oh, my goodness. So we saved that boy. It was great. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, you're right. Emergency. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving it there. <laughs> like, I'm loving it there for I mean, sure. You don't always get to hear the outcomes of what happens to some yeah. people, which, which is understandable. Yeah. But to be there in those times of need and to be able to assist them and their families is, you know, is quite good. I had another young girl last year who was actually travelling through the COVID areas, um, very, very beautiful young girl who... Um, she came, her boyfriend brought her in with his friend. That it took me twenty minutes to get her out of the car. He said to me, "There's something wrong with her. I don't know what it is. I will tell you that we did have some, uh, I don't know, some sort of a, a tripping drug a couple of days ago. And ever since she's had it, she's just been a little bit odd." And um, I went out to this young lass in the car, tried to get her out, and she was just dancing around with her hands. Like it was like observing someone out of a Harry Potter movie. She was just like, all she could say was, hush. Ah. And unbelievable case. And I had to call the doctor in. The doctor was away, of course, you know, it was after hours. And I said, look, I really need you to come in and see this patient now. This is what I've got. This is my history. This is all the information I can get. But you really need to come down. I don't feel that this girl is safe being here. Um, so, yeah, when the doctor came down, the doctor had, was with her. The doctor looked at me and it was like, Oh, my God. And we had to fly this young girl out as well um, because she was, it was an organic, it was, it was organic poisoning of some sort from the drugs that she had taken. But this, we literally had to send her to a mental health facility so that they could get her more assessed. And uh, obviously they'll do more of the medical, medical health assessments when they get her down there. But it was really interesting because... When I found out the history of this young girl, she was actually the head accountant of a big firm in another country and she was here on a working holiday and, you know, being young and silly, everybody does crazy wow. things they do, yeah, and it was just like, wow. And the the two, her, her partner and his friend were just so shocked and they said, we will never, ever touch drugs again. Well, never, ever. And they said all it was was, I think they said ecstasy, and they said, oh, my goodness, we will never, ever touch drugs again after it seeing like, It was days before that that they took it? Yeah. Like when it was actually like stuck in the psychosis. Yeah, yeah. It was about three or four days before he said, and he said, yeah, about three or four days ago we went to a party, we had this, and but it was only one. I said, that's okay. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to right. help you. Yeah. That's why you have to make sure you tell me everything that you know that she's taken so that we can help her and get her better. And that poor girl was 
beyond psychotic. It was it was a real shame to see it. But uh, see, I don't know the outcome of whatever happened to her, but it was really interesting. And you see, that's another thing too. When you go out and you're doing a rural remote, in a lot of the rural areas, there are no there is no mental health assistance for a lot of these people. So uh, that's one of the reasons I like to still have a bit of mental health background around me, so that when I'm out in the urban in the rural areas, I can see these people and go, ah, oh, okay, I know how to help that person straight away, or let's get this medication. I can still give a full assessment as a medical health nurse, a mental health nurse, right. and say. This is what the patient is demonstrating. How can we assist them? Can we give them this particular drug? And the doctors will say either yes or no as to how to deal with it. Hey, guys. So it's at the end of part one for this episode. Thanks for tuning in and check out part two, where you'll hear all about Karen's rescue work during the Australian wildfires in 2020, as well as her experience working with the survivors of the Indian Ocean tsunami. Check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Every interaction helps spread the word about the podcast. And again, be sure to gain special access for two bucks a month by heading over to patreon.com forward slash world nurse collective. Thanks for tuning in. And until next episode, be happy, healthy, and inspired. <laughs>